Hello and welcome to another episode of the Speaker Discovery Series podcast. This is episode seven, and if you haven't heard our previous episodes, please do go back and check them out. This was the first Speaker's Discovery Series we've done virtually, and it was a bit of an experiment that I think went pretty well. Recorded on October 7th, 2020, we had seven amazing speakers join us over Zoom with over 40 attendees listening to their amazing stories. I want to say thank you again to everybody who joined us live and in the moment and to the speakers who were part of the wonderful night. And thank you, audience, for tuning in to this podcast. For all things AFP Toronto, please do visit their website. You'll see all events like this one coming um, that are coming up in the future. Um, and AFP Toronto Congress is coming up in November. Fast and furious. One note on the sound quality of this episode, because it was recorded over Zoom, occasionally you do hear a doorbell noise um, of people coming in. I don't think it affects the overall tone of the podcast, but hopefully it won't be too distracting for you. Have a great time in listening to this. Talk to you soon. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown Accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing We'll give it one last minute here if anybody needs a last uh, run to get a glass of water, and then we will get started. Keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. Was the loser now will be later to win for the times they are changing. All right, why don't we get started here? Thank you, Danielle, my tech support this evening. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us for the seventh season, as we call them, of the Speaker Discovery Series. Uh, I'm so excited to be hosting event this event again, and even more excited to present this amazing group of storytellers tonight for the first time. Uh, and it's virtual, so we'll see how it goes. It's uh, This is our a little experiment tonight, and I'm really excited to, to still be able to showcase new voices um, in a new way. So, you know, pandemic. Uh, when we first started planning this uh, in-person event, uh, it was February of 2020. Uh, and it is tonight that we are finally having this event. Um, so when I think back of February 2020, there was just so much we didn't know. Um, I looked at the committee meeting notes from that month and there was a single line about risk um, around the emerging coronavirus and how we might sell a few less tickets. So we should keep an eye on that. So lots of lessons learned since February uh, back then. My name is Laura Champion. I'm the Senior Manager of Integrated Direct Marketing at the Canadian Red Cross and Chair and Founder of the committee that puts this wonderful event together. Uh, before I get started, I am going to do a land acknowledgement to ensure uh, that we uh, respect the, the lands we're all standing on. 
I would like to start by acknowledging that the land we are gathered on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and it is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. I welcome all of you to explore uh, what lands you currently live on. If you are looking for resources, they are available uh, through AFP as well. For those of you joining us for the first time, I'm going to explain a little bit about what the Speaker Discovery Series is before we jump in. Um, I know a lot of you are repeat uh, uh, joiners to this event, specifically two of our judges. Actually, all three of our judges tonight um, are, are long-term committers to this event. This event uh, uh, series started in January of 2017, which is hard for me to believe, um, as an idea I had. Um, as the Congress Education Committee member and subsequently the chair of Not Congress, um, I would hear frequently that people were upset to be declined from Congress because they didn't have speaking experience. Um, and there was no pathway to get that experience. So knowing something needed to be done, I looked to the, one of my favorite things, podcasts, for a solution. And there it was, storytelling. Anyone can do it, and we all have stories to tell. So there were no barriers. And in that moment, I knew the event needed to be created. With the help of my amazing committee, more on them later, we created the event you'll see tonight. Tonight is a storytelling show. There's no slide decks, no props, just a fundraiser with a story to tell. The speakers you'll see tonight are new or new to AFP speakers who are looking to gain experience speaking in front of an AFP crowd. Each of them applied to be part of tonight. And once selected, they were work they've worked one-on-one -on -one with a coach uh, who has helped them craft their story and has given them presentation pointers. The coaching is directed by the speaker. They identify the type and frequency of help they would like, and it's provided to them. So the speakers you will see tonight have never spoken in front of an AFP crowd, but if it's anything like any other SDS night, you won't be able to tell. The opportunity to learn to speak is just one benefit. They will also receive feedback on their performance tonight. This feedback is detailed written feedback, but also comes with a score that can be used as proof of their speaking ability should they aspire to speak at larger conferences, um, as these conferences often require previous speaking scores. The SES is one of the only ways for new speakers to break through in Toronto specifically. We've had amazing success from past events of launching new speakers past to excellence. Several speakers have gone on to speak at places like AFP Congress, IFC, and CIGP events. This platform really does open opportunities for those who are interested. Thank you tonight to Paula Atfield, Paul Nazareth, and Samantha Barr, who are here in our virtual audience, and will be watching each performance and giving that detailed written feedback to each of the speakers. These three are experienced speakers, and Sam was the originator of the coaching on SDS, so no pressure, folks, <laughs> um, and have presented at Congress and other international conferences around the world, not to mention titans of our industry. We're lucky to have them here tonight. Tonight's theme is metamorphosis, and on the stage tonight, we're going to hear seven amazing, amazing speakers who will touch on everything from the professional to the very personal. And since some of these stories will be so personal, please be reminded that this is a storytelling show. And as such, I really encourage you to be an open and supportive audience. A few technical housekeeping details. Uh, we encourage you to keep cameras on for those who are capable and comfortable to do so. 
Should you need or choose uh, to use closed captioning, it's available by clicking the icon at the bottom of your screen, right about here. There's a little CC box and it should pop right up for you. Um, in order to facilitate that closed captioning, you'll notice we're not in webinar mode. So I encourage you to please mute up while the speakers are presenting. Further, to focus your attention on the speaker, you can change the view in your Zoom window by clicking the top right corner and choosing the speaker view. I would also encourage you to use emojis to show support during the story, and should you feel comfortable, you can unmute and applaud at the end of each story. The SDS thrives with a supportive mentality, and, we'll be tweeting um, and we encourage you to tweet your encouragement and love to our speakers tonight. We'll be using the hashtag AFPSDS and would love to see your thoughts and encouragement on social media this evening. Uh, I do want to do one special call out that's not in the script, so it's, it's less, uh, less tailored, but uh, welcome to Amy Pollock, our president of the AFP Toronto chapter. Um, we're always lucky to have her uh, at any event, and uh, should you have any AFP questions, we have Amy in, uh, looking great, by the way, Amy, love the background. Um, one final piece of housekeeping that uh, you probably already noticed is that we are recording tonight's show and turning it into a podcast as always to share with our colleagues across the country and around the world. If you enjoy tonight's show, please share the podcast when it drops uh, on your favorite fundraising or podcast platform and check out our last episode from season six. So enough of me. We have seven great speakers tonight. And to kick off our night, we have a very special icebreaker speaker who unfortunately couldn't be here live tonight, but shared a video of his story with us to, uh, in order to still be here in spirit. Before we play it, I, I do wanna give you a trigger warning for this specific story. Um, and the trigger warning is for mental health and suicide. So if you aren't in a place to listen to this story, please do take a break. It'll be about 11 minutes, and then we'll be back with more stories. So without further ado, here is Eric Windler here, uh, to tell an important story of turning tragedy into action. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much to the AFP Greater Toronto Chapter for having me and for organizing this wonderful event. I wish I could be with you all live this evening, but I am grateful to have the opportunity to share my story virtually. My name is Eric Windler and I am the founder and executive director at Jack.org, a national youth mental health charity. I'm looking forward to telling our story of transformation up until now but I have to let you know that it's quite heavy to start. To give you some background, my wife, Sandra Hannington, and I started what would become Jack.org back in 2010 after we received the call that no parent ever wants to receive. It was from a police officer who said he had to come to the house. He was there in three minutes. He immediately let us know that tragically, our eldest son, Jack, had died by suicide the night before. Jack was in his first year at Queen's University and was found in his residence room. Of course, we were absolutely devastated, especially as we had no idea that Jack was even struggling. But as we picked ourselves up, 
we learned that Jack had not been attending classes and was hardly leaving his room for several months. Yet back then, no one knew these were signs of mental health distress. And the school staff were not trained to reach out to us to let us know that Jack may have been struggling. This unbelievably tragic moment was the start of our transformation. My transformation personally and our transformation as a family. When the clouds started to part and the shock somewhat subsided, we started to cope. We were inspired to find out everything we possibly could about mental health and how this was even possible, as we thought we were a very happy, healthy family. When the rates of suicide among youth and the amount of mental health crisis became apparent to us, we mobilized. With the support of our family and closest friends, we founded what would become the national youth mental health charity, Jack.org. We wanted to ensure that something good could come from our loss by engaging youth in this, the most critical health issue of their generation, and ensuring that they are able to identify mental health struggles in themselves and others and access the support they need. From starting what we called the Jack Project in 2010, in partnership with Kids Health Phone, then through a pilot with Queen's University, to registering Jack.org as a charity in 2013, this work has been transformational. Fast forward to today, our staff of over 60 works with approximately 3,000 young leaders who volunteer with us in every province and territory. It's incredible. We have several core peer-to-peer -peer programs at Jack.org. First, there are over 200 Jack chapters at high schools, colleges, universities, and in community settings all across Canada, led by young people. They reach out to their peers and build awareness and support around mental health issues. Each year, we also train over 120 Jack Talk speakers who deliver peer-to-peer -peer mental health education presentations, and over 800 of these Jack Talks were presented digitally this past school year. We also host over 20 youth-led Jack summits at the local, regional, and national level each year. These conferences gather our passionate young advocates together for training and to collaborate on ways to dismantle barriers to positive mental health in each of their communities. Finally, through the creation of ambitious mental health resources like Be There, hosted at bethere.org, we provide young people and those who support them with the education they need to support themselves and those around them. At no point has Jack.org and this movement had to transform quite as drastically as in 2020. When this pandemic hit, we were at the very beginning of our foray into digital programming. Just a few weeks prior to the shift to remote work, our five-year strategic plan had been approved by our board, and our goal was to enhance our programs digitally over the, the coming five-year timeframe. Needless to say, our shift to digital had to accelerate, and the circumstances required us to work creatively to reach youth online during a time when it was more important than ever. 
As you likely know, the COVID-19 pandemic has further exacerbated the youth mental health crisis. With regular reports of increased mental health struggle amongst young people, experts are calling mental health the second wave of the pandemic, especially given long periods of isolation, health and financial concerns, and continued uncertainty, which even continues to today. I'm sure you all never thought you'd be so tired of the word pivot, but that is exactly what we had to do to respond to the situation. Not only did all of our programs have to transform to digital to ensure we were reaching youth where they were, but our fundraising was immediately and directly impacted by this massive change. We ended up having an incredible year, however, raising 8.2 million versus 6.2 million the prior year, all despite the challenges of the pandemic. We are so grateful as we were able to have very ambitious growth plans with 20 new staff in the pipeline and an exciting annual plan to continue to scale all of our programs. Looking back, here are a few factors that were crucial to our digital fundraising success over the course of such an unprecedented year. First, we are so fortunate that our cause resonated with so many over the course of the past year. Youth mental health, still stigmatized in many circles, was brought forward to the forefront of the conversation alongside the COVID-19 pandemic. And the increased focus on it led many new donors to support our work. We made sure that we continually emphasized the importance of improving youth mental health outcomes in both a pandemic and post-pandemic world in all of our fundraising and stewardship activities. Not only did our cause resonate, but so did our personal story. I told it to you here today, but there are so many cases where I will meet with a donor, tell our story, and they are often inclined to give, often significantly, on the spot. As we'll see here tonight, authentic storytelling is such a powerful tool in general, and especially when it comes to fundraising. It's not always easy to tell our story, but it does serve as a steady reminder of the importance of this work. Another thing that has never been as important as this past year is donor stewardship. It used to be a breeze to stick to our usual methods of in-person meetings and standard communications with our donors. But we really had to dedicate ourselves to personal, creative, and engaging stewardship during a time when not only was everyone unsettled, but everyone's email was flooded with communications from every direction. We really needed to stand out. So we emphasized personal interaction with all of our donors, made it a priority to set up Zoom calls with our major donors, and hosted creative stewardship events. And of course, every single major donor receives a personal thank you card, many of which I signed personally. An additional factor that led to a strong year was our diverse funding base. This has always been a priority in our development work, but this year stood out as the increased focus on mental health brought in so many more individual donors and led to a surge in third-party fundraising events. We ended the year with about 50% of our funding coming from over 15,000 individual donors 
and the other 50% split between foundations, government, and corporate supporters. With such a broad range of donors and funders, we were able to rely on and see increased support in so many areas. One of the most exciting fundraising transformations over the past year took place in the form of a cycling event, Jack Ride. Our biggest fundraiser of the year is this bike ride that usually takes place in person with 1,250 riders in Caledon, Ontario. In 2020, Jack Ride was scheduled for May, just a few months after everything shut down. Similarly to our programming, we had to very quickly transition to a virtual ride with people riding safely wherever they were. Though we weren't sure how this transition would go, we were so fortunate to see unbelievable growth in the event as we were able to open it up to the entire country and beyond. And we had riders fundraising and riding near and far. This led to a huge expansion of the event and we were able to hold it virtually again this year, doubling our goal of 1 million raised and bringing in almost 2.1 million from over 13,000 individual donors, up from 1.3 million the prior year. To say we were blown away by the support of our community would be an understatement. It's hard to believe how far we have come since tragedy struck our family 11 years ago. Our founding story was a heartbreaking, powerful transformation for my entire family. We are grateful every day to have had the chance to take this journey that saw this tragedy become an impactful, youth-focused national movement. And while none of us would have chosen the events of this past year and a half and all that the pandemic has brought, it did lead us to the most recent and one of the most fundamental stages in our metamorphosis as an organization. Thank you so much again for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share my story with you here today. Enjoy the rest of these amazing stories and please take care. Thank you, Eric, for sending that video in. Uh, I think it's such an important topic that stays top of mind during the, the pandemic is mental health. We, he, he called it out right there in his story. And so we really thought that would be a great way to kind of kick off tonight and set the tone uh, overall. Uh, between each of our stories, you're stuck with me for a minute or two each time because our judges are scoring and uh, making notes before the next speaker comes on to the, the scene. Um, so I like to fill it with different weird stories about myself, but in this case I'm just filling time by telling you that the judges are currently scoring. Um, we do have some amazing speakers uh, tonight and I'm, I'm really excited to kind of showcase the live aspect as well um, and give everybody the opportunity to take their minute on the stage. And so with that in mind, our first live speaker tonight is Alex Hilson. Uh, normally, I would give an introduction here, uh, but uh, Alex, the rock star that he is, has built it right into his story. So I will just toss it over to him. Welcome, Alex. Well, thank you, Laura. I wasn't trying to be a rock star. I just uh, I wasn't sure how to start. So uh, my name is Alex Olson. I'm from Acton, Ontario. Uh, some of you might have heard the saying, it's worth the drive. The uh, old hide house is in Acton, Ontario. It's an old leather community, so we're... We're just a, a little west of Toronto, a little east of Guelph, 
little north of Melton. So right on the edge of the GTA, it's definitely worth the drive if you happen to be on Highway 7 heading out uh, out of Toronto. So um, I work for the Acton BIA. Uh, it's a little different to some of the organizations that we have on the call tonight. Uh, I don't know if any of you have familiarities with a BIA. It's a business improvement association. So we do events, we do flowers, we do infrastructure, we do fundraise, but we don't fundraise the same way that University of Toronto might be fundraising. So, uh, but I, I did come from fundraising. Uh, I it started with uh, an internship at the Georgetown Hospital Foundation. I uh, did the intro to fundraising course through AFP Toronto. Actually, Paul Nazareth on the call here tonight uh, was one of one of the speakers back then. It was probably 20, 2013, 2014. Uh, and uh, told to us about social media at that time. Uh, and uh, in, in 2017, I was named Outstanding Youth in Philanthropy by AFP Golden Horseshoe, which I was very proud of. So, uh, and, and now I'm here, here tonight. So before doing the BIA, I just started the BIA. I used to work in other volunteer organizations. I worked with youth, and I was working for our local paper at the time, uh, at a, a police versus youth hockey game. They do them every once in a while to, to kind of engender good feeling between the police and, and youth. And uh, I had my camera and I was taking photos and this youth came up to me and he said, hey, you know, can I take a couple photos? And he seemed really interested. So I, I let him and he, he wanted to do it again. So I said, okay, you know, let's, let's meet up next week. And, uh, and we did this a couple times, and it, it was just, it was cool being able to, to nurture that in, in someone young like that. But for the sake of the story, I'll, I'll call him Thomas. I learned that he was Indigenous, uh, an only child from a single mother. So he'd had sort of a tough upbringing. The pandemic hit, and I didn't see Thomas for a number of months. Uh, my organization, our BIA, is responsible for a farmer's market. Uh, so the, the market hadn't done very well in 2019 before I started, uh, and, and with COVID, it looked doomed. Uh, we were getting all those questions you don't want to get from uh, your vendors, like, uh, can you guarantee I'm going to make money? Or, uh, you know, how many vendors have you got signed up? Uh, are people going to actually be there, right? All these, all these things you don't want to hear, and I, I was actually also short of volunteers. So I asked Thomas, and he was able to help. And I was, I was thankful for that. Feeling to be given a leadership role, Thomas started asking his friends to volunteer with him. Uh, we started with seven vendors that first market, and at the end of the season, we had over 20. It was, it was tremendous growth, and, and I credit that partially to the positive atmosphere that we had from our youth volunteers, and from Thomas specifically, he was the catalyst for it. Uh, there was just this, this great uh, positive energy they had. Uh, as uh, fate sometimes has it, we're, we're actually holding our final farmer's market of the season. Right now, as we sp speak outside, it's running to 7 o'clock. Uh, and uh, just to give you an idea, this was, that was last year, finished with over 20 vendors. This year, we've actually had two markets where we've hit 35 vendors on a Thursday night in Acton. Uh, our best night, we actually had 45 vendors. Uh, just unbelievable uh, progress and, and growth for us. And we still, uh, we still have our youth. I actually have uh, one of the, the guys uh, wanted to stay inside and he's watching me here. So, Sam, you want to say hi? <laughs> Sam. Um, so, so just this unbelievable transformation. 
Thomas had other gifts. His mother was handy and he picked that up. He likes landscaping and building things from wood. He liked tools, machines, and pretty soon him and his friends were helping me out downtown landscaping with bushes and cutting grass. They were helping me. I needed their help for the market and I asked for their help, but I didn't need that. They did this because they wanted to help. And, and that was amazing to see for me. Thomas did so well that he decided to start a landscaping business with his friends. He built a wagon for his tools and he asked our market vendors to sponsor him and they did and it was amazing. And he started making money with his friends, with his business. It was unbelievable. At the end of that summer, he became a co-op student for his school at our organization. He earned his credits through our organization after the, the, the farmer's market. His friends in the community noticed and we started getting offers of help from other young people who saw an opportunity to help and, and be given a, a chance to, 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 to develop. So our theme tonight is metamorphosis, that idea um, that, 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 to change, according to the Cambridge Dictionary. It's, it's change, really, uh, when we apply it in the, the sort of setting we're applying it tonight. Um, and and he, as it is in a biology, it's a, a sudden change from one's immature form to a, to a mature form, going from a, a kid to an adult. It, it's not applied to humans uh, in a biological sense. It's a sudden thing. It's quick and it's positive and it's natural and it's something, uh, it, it's the, that sign in an organism's life where the organism, is, it goes from being uh, reliant and, and immature to being able to to, to contribute and to, to be something greater than it is. So in our organization, we saw a jewel metamorphosis. We saw Thomas at that tricky age, 14, 15, becoming, uh, being given that adult responsibility, being able to contribute and to, to develop those skills and to help other people and to serve. And we as an organization and we as a farmer's market had a metamorphosis from that point where we had to make a decision. Were, were we gonna keep running this market? Is this how are we gonna serve our community? And we were able to do that, and it was it happened. It was intertwined. So, just finishing up here, um, it, it's been said before: you got to trust your volunteers. And when you trust your volunteers, and when you trust youth particularly, and it is risky sometimes because they don't know. But if you can engage that energy, uh, it, it can be so positive. It was positive for us, and it was definitely positive for Thomas. My name is Alex Hilson. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's hurt the he who has stalled the battle outside region. <laughs> Love the big applause on there. That's great. Thank you so, so much, Alex, for, for kicking us off. And I knew your story was about a farmer's market, and I completely kind of forgot until you started talking. Part of my metamorphosis in the last year um, has been working with a, an organization called Do Good Donuts, uh, which is for individuals uh, with intellectual and physical disabilities to help them get employment. And it's at farmers markets in the case um, uh, in this case as well uh, and over COVID there are major issues to try and figure out launching a social enterprise and and running a, a farmers market like that so I definitely uh, feel that uh, in the background and, and congratulations to you that's that's amazing Oh, we have a fan of Do Good Donuts in the audience. That's exciting. Uh, this week's donut is a savory. It's a Thanksgiving stuffing flavor. So if anybody's interested, you can order at dogooddonuts.ca. That's just a plug on the side. Um, 
I do want to acknowledge that, you know, right now there is a lot of change happening in our industry. And it's it's something that I have been a big part of. Um, for those of you who have seen the great resignation articles and, and the changes in people's lives because of COVID, because of everything that's happened. And I'm certainly part of it. Um, going from Blakely, where I see so many of my family members, I want to say from Blakely here tonight, uh, and, and to a new world. Um, and that, that change has been hard, and it's never uh, something that comes easy for, for folks in the workplace that they absolutely adored. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to see so many uh, friendly faces here tonight. We do have a Blakely speaker tonight, um, so I'm, I'm excited to uh, have Allison come on in a little bit. But before I do that, I'm going to introduce our next speaker. Um, I do want to share a trigger warning, um, this time uh, for cancer content. So if it's something you aren't in a space to take on right now, please take a 10 minute break and come on back. Something that makes tonight even more special is the fact that we were able to open the call for speakers Canada-wide, and our applicants reflected that. Uh, and up next is Joanne Linka, who's an amazing fundraiser, a wife, a mother, and coming to us live from the West Coast. So welcome, Joanne. Thanks so much, Laura. As if dealing with a global pandemic wasn't enough, my body also decided it was an excellent time to get cancer. Suddenly, the evil C word, COVID, was overshadowed by the even more evil C word, cancer. We've probably all thought about at one time in our life how we will die. And I've always assumed, knowing my family history, that it would be cancer. And yet when I heard the diagnosis, it hit me hard. And I couldn't believe that I had this brutal disease. At 47 years old, newly married, and with still two kids at home, I suddenly became aware of just how much I had to live for. My name is Joanne Linka. I'm the Manager of Communication and Fund Development at the Cridge Centre for the Family on the traditional territory of the Wasonic and Songhees Nations, otherwise known as Victoria, BC. And I am also a survivor of breast cancer. I've worked as a fundraiser for the past seven years. I love my job, the people I work with, and the programs that I support. For six years, I poured my heart and my soul into my work, often working overtime, literally running to get another project done, trying to get that one, one more donor meeting in. I am 100% committed. My impression is that fundraisers are 100% committed to the work that they do and the organizations that they serve. We often have personal connections with the missions of our organization and we fundraise knowing that we're making a difference in so many lives. It's rewarding and exciting work, and it brings so much satisfaction. But at what point does that 100% commitment become unhealthy? In my first six years of being a fundraiser, I faced burnout at least four times. I was always exhausted and had little energy for the rest of my life. Taking a week off never seemed enough. But more than a week caused such a backlog at work that it was too stressful to take more time off. How many of us inadvertently sacrifice our home life, relationships, and health to do our jobs well? While the funds we raise may help a significant number of people, 
does that make our own needs and health less important? Breast cancer is closely linked with stress in a certain type of person. She's usually someone who takes care of others, gives freely of her time and resources, and is passionately committed to doing whatever it takes to make a difference. Sound familiar? After my diagnosis, I started reading about cancer and what causes it. I was astounded to find this connection with stress and horrified to realize that my choices around work could have a deadly outcome. I'm now 18 months past my diagnosis. I had surgery, a month of radiation, and I'll be on medication for another four years. I'm mostly okay. My energy is low and completely disappears when I do too much or when I'm stressed. But otherwise, I'm back to normal. Or am I? Most people who have survived cancer will tell you that they never return to normal. We need to create a new normal that includes the word cancer in our lives. The disease didn't kill us, so now we have to choose how are we going to live. During my recovery, I realized that I couldn't keep working the way I had been. I told my boss I have to quit. It was such a hard realization, but I knew I had to make a change. I'm fortunate to have a boss who fully supported my recovery and said that she would rather have me part-time than not at all. Together, we strategized how to make that work, how to reassign tasks, who we would hire to take over part of my work, and how I would continue to be a manager of a team with part-time hours. There have been a few bumps along the way, but there's also been a great deal of learning. Probably the most significant thing I've learned is that I don't have to do everything myself. Wow, right? <laughs> when I first started my job, I was a team of one, taking care of all the communication and fund development for an organization that has seven distinct programs and served over 2,000 clients. As the years went by, my team grew with three individuals who are skilled in those areas where I am not. We all work part-time in our areas of expertise and have created an amazing team that cooperates and supports each other's work. I still struggle some days to keep my head above water as I manage so many moving parts. However, now I get to focus on what I do best. The last year of working part-time has been my best year yet, even though I was sick for a good part of it. Focused attention to the important tasks has reaped an incredible reward. Working smarter really is better than working harder. All the busyness of trying to do everything for everyone created stress and not really excellent results. Go figure. So COVID and cancer have taught me a few things that I hope will help you too. One, not everything is important or needs my attention. Delegate and trust other people's expertise or at least their ability to figure it out. Two, life is precious. Take the time to make good decisions about how you spend it. Three, stress has permanent and deadly outcomes. 
What choices can you make that will bring joy and peace into your life? Four, we can all make better choices. They may be hard and unpopular, but they may also save our lives. The reality of cancer in my life is a hard thing. Every time I have a pain or a twinge, I wonder if the cancer is back. The other week, I was sure I had eyebrow cancer. <laughs> but I'm also grateful for the cancer and the hard choices I've had to make. Ironically, it took cancer to get me to a place of better health and balance. My hope is that you will be much smarter than I was. Please, make good choices before you hit the wall of illness and burnout. Your life and what you contribute to your community is too valuable to throw away. Thank you. Mothers and fathers. Thank you so much, Joanne, for sharing your story. Uh, I'm a little choked up, so I'm trying really hard not to, um, but uh, that was wonderful. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. So brave and so wonderful for you to share that. Um, well, the judges score, I'm uh, going to tell you a little story about uh, a metamorphosis of another kind. Um, so it, you may have noticed I'm coming to you from the wilderness of a cabin uh, here up in Barry's Bay, Ontario. Uh, my husband and I retreated up here uh, to our cottage uh, through COVID um, because we're afraid of Toronto, basically. Um, and so we've been up here most of the summer. Um, and one of the fun and wonderful things that happens in Northern Ontario every once in a while is a gypsy moth infestation. And so uh, this is something that my husband had dealt with as a child, but I was unclear of as to what that actually meant. And I had seen signs of it the year previous, um, but this year is, wow. Um, and so for those of you who don't know what a gypsy moth infestation <laughs> turns into, um, across uh, they... Um, climb up every tree that they can eat, including pine trees, once they've eaten everything else. Um, and they are big, hairy, thick caterpillars that climb up the tree um, in order to lay their eggs. Um, and, and, and eventually, or excuse me, actually they climb the tree to turn into pupa and then eventually lay their eggs. So in order to save the trees, uh, you need to either wrap them in burlap to keep the, the caterpillars away or, and or go out and scrape them off the trees. Um, and if you touch the caterpillars, they explode and they explode a gross goo. And if you touch the fur, they give you a bit of a like rash on your arm. So they're just monsters basically, um, that rain from the sky for a little while, uh, before they, um, uh, metamorphose into their pupae and then eventually into horrible moths. Um, uh, the reason I tell you this is one of our esteemed judges tonight, Samantha Barr, happens to be a friend of mine as well, and uh, she was visiting me here at the cottage over the summer, um, and uh, we had to stop by my husband's parents' place to scrape the caterpillars because they weren't around and they have a, a fairly large property. Um, so Sam mostly sat in the wings, as you can imagine, as a guest, she didn't uh, feel the, the necessity to go ahead and scrape up our caterpillars. Um, but it took a full hour 
shower and a huge bucket full of these writhing, disgusting caterpillars um, because you just drown them, basically. Uh, I'm a vegan. I don't condone killing a lot of things, but these caterpillars are toast. Um, and so we finish the job and we're walking back to our place here and Sam is a little bit behind uh, my husband, Phil, um, and she squeals and... Uh, what what's going on and there is a giant caterpillar on the back of my husband just crawling his way up uh it was the grossest um and then i was convinced that i had them just all in my hair like that they were in there and they were never coming out and i was gonna have a caterpillar afternoon so yeah sometimes metamorphoses are not helpful uh i, I would really like them to go away <laughs> So that's my little uh, side story about metamorphosis, uh, metamorphosis for you. So I'm going to bring our next speaker up now. Um, and uh, admittedly, I'm a bit of a LinkedIn creeper. And our next speaker, Ashley Levingstone, um, founder and chief engagement officer at R Forte, was one I absolutely investigated. On her website, I learned that when Ashley isn't brainstorming new ideas or keeping clients and their initiatives on track, she can be found playing baseball with her son Miller, hiking the Bruce Trail with her wife Kate, and feeding her never full but handsome Golden Retriever Jackson. Ashley has a story about metamorphosis that changed her inside and out. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much, Laura, and I am trying very hard to not be itchy now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, thanks for having me, everyone. And my story is about fundraising and the change that I personally made. So when I started fundraising many years ago, I considered it old school with a capital S. The organization had one approach, and I jokingly called it the Stepford Wives. We as fundraisers were out to flatter donors. We would fawn over them, make them feel really good about themselves, almost fitting a stereotype that I think my boss thought they wanted. But it was fake, and I was fake. It was the kind of organization where we'd be told to wear skirts to donor events and not to forget our nylons where as a fundraising professional with real bottom line financial goals, I had to forego conversations with volunteers about sponsorship or ticket sales or revenue generating activities and instead sit through several vision boarding exercises about napkin colors, okay? I was called young, sweetie, hun, dear, and I gave out the hugs. I ate the small sandwiches that were left over from the meetings, but never ate with the donors. But I never fully drank that Kool-Aid, and that's what I held on to. So while a part of you realizes that this isn't who you really are, it becomes a bit of a trap, and you become who others perceive you to be. And I was trapped in that persona. Like a Stepford wife, I put on my face every day, and I played my part, and so my real life broke through. I struggled with fertility, um, infertility issues for five years and suffered a miscarriage all in secret. It didn't fit the story anyone at work wanted to hear or one that in fairness, I was willing to share with them. Then when I did become pregnant, it was high risk. My appointments took me away from work 
every week and involved in emergency surgery. While this was happening, my boss would call and assign me high priority work while I sat in the waiting room. It wasn't healthy and I wasn't healthy. So for some, self-realization comes over a long period of time with a lot of hard work. For me, I feel like it happened practically overnight. Suddenly, nothing else mattered to me other than the soul that I was nurturing inside of me. And that was my wake up call. So once the danger of my pregnancy had passed and I held that healthy baby boy in my arms, things changed. I realized I needed to be me so I could show my son how he could succeed just being himself. My biggest fear was that he would follow in my footsteps and go through life being fake to make others happy. And that was when I realized I needed to be braver than ever before. So I quit my job while on that leave. And I started my own business that I'm still running today. And it's dedicated to helping charities and nonprofits connect with their donors and volunteers in deeper, more meaningful ways. I believe in building meaningful relationships to help everyone achieve their goals. Now I get to choose who I work with. And because relationships are so important to me, if I can't be myself around someone, I don't work with them. I am proud to say that I have boundaries and boundaries that protect my time and foster healthy, mutually respectful relationships with my clients, my team, and my partners. Change doesn't come without struggle. And we've seen this as COVID has really turned not only our work lives upside down, but our personal lives. Um, opposing viewpoints are tearing people apart and facts are breaking down into opinions and frankly, distrust is really growing daily. So for me, figuring out how to keep people connected in a meaningful way when we couldn't be together was a huge goal of mine. And I always knew that ego fluffing wasn't the way to do it. So what I discovered is that we can actually still connect on the things that matter, like all of us being together tonight. When we first shut down in March 2020, I was weeks away from the biggest gala of the year for one of my principal clients. It was your typical event with a big venue, lots of food, open bar, we remember those, <laughs> and a high production value. So what were we going to do? I gave myself permission to be brave again and to step into where I knew I could shine. In under two months, my team completely transformed that gala into a virtual event unlike any other that had been seen at the time. I knew in order to be successful, I was going to really need the support of my team, partners, and suppliers. We'd all win if we worked together. So we enlisted local caterers, five in fact, allowing guests choice for the first time investing back into local businesses and providing a unique premium experience at home. Guests came and picked up their food and received their curated gift bags. And for many of them, it was the first chance they had to engage with other people since the lockdown began. When they logged into their tables, 
they were delighted to see they were actually in there with other people. They got to talk to them, engage with them, and really connect before a formal program began. We gave them an opportunity to engage in real time, and it made a difference. Together, we helped our guests and supporters celebrate and connect in a truly meaningful new way. It was an event with impact. And I know I would not have been able to do this if I had to be fake. I would never have had the courage to be brave or innovate, to ask for help. And I don't even think I would have had the ability to celebrate my success. Instead, I would have been spending my energy holding up appearances, worrying about judgment, living in a state of overwhelm. And we know that this only stifles creativity and teamwork. And now every day I get to work with teams and leaders who see the value in nurturing relationships, who are curious about their blind spots and desire a culture of engagement and gratitude to create meaningful experiences. Let's face it, fundraising is hard work. <laughs> it is tiring and we don't need that added layer of stress to be someone you aren't. So my message to everyone is don't be afraid to be who you are. The key though, is to really get to know yourself and want to keep growing. And I know for many, this is harder than it might be for others. But when we can create the space for acceptance of ourselves, we also learn how to create the space for accepting others to be themselves. And as Joanne said, life is moving fast. It's time to stop going through the motions to fit into a role or make others happy and to really just step into the life you deserve to lead. And you're going to see your impact grow even more. So thank you, everyone. Then you Beyond your command, your old road is rapidly... Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing that and for uh, kind of ending our first half here on a, a great note. Um, in order to make sure everything is as inclusive as possible, we're going to give everybody a bio break now. So it is 626 by my clock. So uh, we're going to do a five minute break because you're all so much closer to a washroom than you would be if we were doing this in person. Um, uh, so I will uh, call you all back at uh, 631. Feel free to stay on and chat if you like. Um, we'll have the music playing softly in the background um, or go and get a beverage or a snack inspired by the gift bag if you like uh, and uh, we'll see you back here in five minutes. All right, welcome back. I hope everybody has a refreshed beverage or has uh, done a few stretches getting ready for the second half here. We have three more amazing stories uh, that we're going to share before the evening is out. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to belabor it anymore and just get started with our second half. So kicking it off is Margaret Tannehill-Wade, Treasurer and Executive Director of St. Luke Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Ontario. Margaret's story was one that jumped off the page at me, given some of the news stories about our sector lately. She has an important message for all of us and along with a nudge to be better in the face of, but we've always done it that way. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks so much, Laura. 
I'm really pleased to be um, invited to the speaker series and I and really telling this story for the first time anywhere in, in a cohesive way. Um, I was privileged to be the prospect management officer and the portfolio specialist at Carleton University for 16 years. And I joined many of my colleagues along the way and earned my CFRE about five years ago. But today's story is not about my professional work, it's about my volunteer work and to share the story of metamorphosis and resilience at St. Luke Lutheran Church in Ottawa. Every organization needs to change and adapt in order to survive and thrive. My church was founded over 100 years ago, and you can imagine the magnitude of change in the past century plus. Two world wars forced uh, the congregation to suppress their German heritage. There were changes in technology, changes in government, dozens of ministers, countless volunteer leaders, each with their own style and their own personality. In 1915, when the church was founded, every single family that belonged to that church lived in the neighborhood. They built the church with their own hands, partly. <laughs> if the, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but now... Uh, there's only one family that lives in that neighborhood, and it's not even the minister. But I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. So here's how philanthropy works in my church. This is a group of people who put their heart and soul into other people's well-being. People are almost never asked. We don't, we don't do philanthropy like professional fundraisers. They're presented with a budget, with, with the needs of the year, and people give what they're moved to give. For, for our church folk, um, it's a very tactile and personal experience. Giving is an offering of oneself and one's resources. We have a long history of more than sufficient financial support, and the endowment fund has grew to well over a half a million dollars over the years which is really quite unusual for any church anywhere. And the overarching motivation for giving, of course, people give where their heart is, and in this case, where their faith is. So that leads me to the first example of metamorphosis from our recent past. That principle of trust and faith and giving from the heart and being financially well situated is what nearly brought the congregation to the brink of destruction. Seven years ago, we discovered that our treasurer of 30 years, who had an impressive professional history and a CPA, embezzled over $600,000 of our church, almost all of the endowment funds. I had a very visceral reaction to that discovery. I felt the betrayal in my body and I can imagine that almost every other member of that church felt the same way. Hundred, over a hundred years of loyal donors, of legacy donors, of hundreds and hundreds of people and family members. What a depth for, the, for this congregation and the betrayal was even deeper. It was truly devastating and very divisive. How could we ever recover from such a betrayal? And who would ever trust our church leaders in the future? 
So that change was forced on us and the leadership had to respond to that. And did I mention that one week after that discovery, I became the new treasurer along with a whole new executive board who had to dive in headfirst and learn crisis management on the fly. So to make a long story short, it wasn't easy. It was extremely time consuming and energy sapping to turn to so much of our attention to legal proceedings and taking us away from our core mission. But there are two approaches that the leaders of the church, including myself, that helped the congregation recover. The first thing was transparency. There were no secret meetings, no backroom deals, no none of that that had gone on. Just open transparency, keeping people informed and creating safe spaces for open dialogue and challenge. And regular accountability is the second thing for our ministry programs, but especially for the finances with regular impact uh, reports to all the members. So they knew what was happening with our finances quarter by quarter. As a result, some of the stolen funds were, were, were recovered and offerings rose 15% year over year after a brief decline initially. But then, just as we were rebuilding our trust and relationships were being repaired, coming back literally from the, from the brink of destruction, along came COVID-19. So what does that mean for a charity that relies mostly on 100% in-person contact? <clears throat> People bringing their offerings to church with them, having that tactile experience of putting that offering in the offering plate. Fortunately, our members embraced two years prior uh, an automatic debit giving program. And during COVID, we instituted e-transfers that has surprisingly taken off. It was, it was actually quite amazing. Um, but with COVID, there was no Sunday school, there was no services, there were no potluck suppers. I personally missed that a lot. <laughs> um, there was nothing in person. And like so many charities, we had to quickly figure out how to do YouTube Live and Facebook Live and Zoom and all of those things that we had never, ever thought of employing previously. But would that be enough to keep members engaged, to feed their faith, to continue to rebuild after such a huge loss of trust and funds? And when they would they continue to give? I'm happy to say that the answer is yes. In spite of the ups and downs of COVID regulations, we're still alive and thriving. So that brings me to the next part of our metamorphosis is what's in the future for St. Luke. Our endowment fund is now almost $1 million. Hey. Thanks to legal settlements and selling the manse. And you don't have to worry, we did not leave the minister homeless. <laughs> COVID restrictions on meeting in person has actually given us time to think about planning strategically and thoughtfully. 
And we now have an online ministry that goes well, well, well beyond our four walls that no one ever dreamed of. And for many, many churches, that's very revolutionary. So these two events in our recent past, as well as St. Luke's long history, have proved the resilience of the people of St. Luke. And the moral of the story is that we do have a future and the metamorphosis continues. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. That was absolutely wonderful. And uh, I, I regret that we weren't in person to hear the gasps when you uh, revealed the, the amount of money taken because I, I did it when I read your story the first time. I've done it again tonight. And I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in our sector right now. Um, and a lot of people coming to light as having maybe mismanaged some funds. I can think of one example in particular. Um, and for anybody who hasn't yet listened to the White Saviors podcast put out by Canada Land, I highly, highly recommend it. It's about the Wee scandal um, and, and all of that they have uncovered to date. Uh, and they continue that investigative reporting. So we're grateful for good fundraisers and good humans like you, Margaret. Um, so thank you uh, so much for that. I will say the other thing that has happened metamorphosis-wise for me through this pandemic is really understanding my friendships um, and understanding, you know, kind of who are my people uh, through this. And I've, I've heard from a lot of folks that they've had a similar experience. Um, one of those friendships that, that really blossomed uh, through COVID is actually with someone else who is here tonight, uh, and that's Anne Rosenfield. Um, she uh, has stepped up in a way in my life that uh, I never would have uh, expected. So for those of you who don't know, um, I live with a chronic illness, um, and the only medication that actually uh, keeps me moving and keeps me as energetic as you see tonight um, is only sold in America. And so uh, when COVID hit, um, I couldn't get it anymore. And so there was a moment, um, and more than one, <laughs> where I was on the phone with somebody weeping because I knew that the cliff was coming and I was about to fall off of it because I didn't have that medication. And it was just me having a conversation with the, the beautiful and wonderful Anne Rosenfield. And she raised her hand because she has dual citizenship. And it is thanks to Anne that I have been in medicated every day through this pandemic. Um, and uh, it's really helped us kind of connect on a really, really deep level. Um, and I show my gratitude in a way that I have uncovered and absolutely loves, which is elaborate and extra extraordinary gift basketing um, because I've become that lady. I'm officially that woman, the white woman who gives gift baskets. And so I have found, I now have a preferred gift basket vendor uh, and love to send them uh, to Anne. So it's, it's one of those things that has changed in me in so many ways. Um, and I'm so, so grateful for the personalities that have come out through COVID, for all the bad, for all of the doom scrolling, for all of everything else that has happened. There are beautiful and wonderful humans and souls out there. Um, and and I, that has really changed my perspective uh, in what the world could be. I, I think there were moments where I got real negative and I think of Anne and I think of the other moments that have been uplifting to kind of get me through these things. And I hope that each one of you has an Anne that has gotten you through COVID. 
So moving to our next speaker tonight. Um, when we put out the call for speakers, uh, we always ask people to tell us a little bit about themselves in a free text field. And they can say whatever they want and our applicants never let us down. And our next speaker, Michael Ragsale, uh, who's the manager of annual programs at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabil Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation, uh, he shared that he has been a foster parent to 16 rescue dogs. Uh, and when he's not thinking about fundraising, he's a big fan of traveling, outdoors, and hiking with his current dog, Lando. And Michael's story is one that connected with me in a, a really real way. And I, I think it will for many of you as well. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, and thanks for inviting me to join such an outstanding group of speakers here tonight. Uh, I'm so excited for the opportunity to share with all of you my story of metamorphosis and transformation tonight, uh, and to take part in my first speaking event, uh, not only with AFP Toronto, but ever. So here we go. <laughs> my story starts almost two years ago, way back in November of 2019. Uh, a time I'm sure that everyone will agree was a much simpler time. Uh, here I was working almost five years as a fundraiser at an uh, international development organization that's focused on women's rights. My partner and I were talking and we decided to do what we long discussed. We were going to quit our jobs, take an extended career break and travel the world in 2020. What could go wrong? Oh, no. Well, at the time, this decision was quite scary, but also very exciting. Um, and it kind of kicked off the first phase of my story that I'm sharing tonight. Here I was enjoying what I did, felt great pride in the impact that my fundraising was having on the lives of women and girls around the world. But I knew we would always regret it if we didn't take the chance and just go through what we talked about year over year. So I put in my notice, worked on my transition plan for my replacement, got to work subletting our apartment, to my brother, which came in handy, handy <laughs> later, uh, and started packing months worth of living into a single backpack each. Well, fast forward four exciting months tra of travel filled with adventure, plenty of tasty meals, a few mishaps, but more importantly, plenty of learnings about who I was and what I was capable of. It's now the middle of March. We're sitting down to a nice dinner in Vietnam. Everyone we know is worried about Tom Hanks and our home stays closed. Still letting us stay there, though, and Canadians have just been told to come home by our government. Fast forward a bit quicker, 48 hours later, and we're walking back into our old apartment, a two-week-long self-imposed quarantine because it wasn't required at the time, uh, and both of us are out of work with absolutely no idea what was to come, like everyone else. In many ways, our decision to cut our dream trip short was a lot scarier and harder than our decision to actually leave our jobs and leave our whole life behind. But looking back now, it's decisions like these that are often difficult are really what the, are the drivers of transformation and metamorphosis and really kicked off the second phase of my story that I'm sharing with all of you tonight. Like everyone in the world, the next month was one of the hardest, most stressful and tedious months I can remember, partly because it's two of us in a one bedroom apartment, which we're still in now with a 75 pound German Shepherd. Uh, but a little over a month later, after coming home and countless job applications later, I was thrilled and very, very fortunate to be joined in Holland Blairview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation of its, as its manager of annual programs. So on the morning of April 27th, I began my third phase of my transformation story tonight, put on a freshly ironed shirt, what I now call my work sweats, and was ready for my first day and was excited to meet all of my coworkers and my new team online though. 
Like everyone, I was navigating the new world of working remotely, but I was also doing it starting an entirely new job that also saw me becoming a people manager formally for the very first time in my career. So I quickly found myself having to email people, schedule a Zoom call to ask simple questions like, where's this file? Who's that? What's this? Where can I find this out? Instead of taking the usual five to 10 seconds of just poking my head into someone's office or cubicle and asking them a short question like that. But it's, in, it's really due to the incredible workplace culture that Hull and Blairview has, as well as all of its staff that made starting a new job entirely virtually in the beginning of a pandemic way smoother than it had any right to be and continues to be. One thing in particular I found very helpful that I probably wouldn't have done before was to sign up and volunteer for anything and everything within the foundation or the hospital. So whether it was co-chairing our monthly team meetings, joining an internal committee, whether within the foundation or the hospital, or just attending a hospital town hall, a webinar, I was there ready to learn and eager to just dive right in as much as I could. So I'm incredibly proud of what my team or organization and I was able to accomplish in my first year and a half at Holland Blairview. So as the pandemic continued to worsen and go through various waves, we were able to adapt, come together with our supporters, incredible volunteers and donors, and continue to make a huge impact on the lives of kids and youth with disabilities. Campaigns like Giving Tuesday, our direct mails, monthly donor program, and all hands on deck Capes for Kids Peer to Peer event that has hundreds of people in Toronto don their bright red capes and be superheroes for a week in support of a good cause of in support of kids with disabilities. They all had record breaking results, which we're all just over the moon about. Um, however, by far what I'm most proud of in my early times at Holland Blairview is just how I was able to support my team as a manager for the first time in a time that was extremely stressful for them both professionally and personally. I'm extremely proud that they were able to trust me and grow alongside me and support them and continue to take on more and more responsibility. Many of them got promotions throughout the year, which I'm incredibly proud of. I'm sad that they've left me, but <laughs> very proud of them. And, <laughs> but, and I'm now eagerly looking forward to the day when we are returning to the office later this month for the first time in 18 months. I'm sure it'll bring new challenges and opportunities, but I'm very excited to meet some of my coworkers for the very first time. And looking back, while well, I focused on three phases of my story of metamorphosis tonight that saw me move from traveler, making the tough decision to come home early, to joining Holland Blurview and managing a team for the first time, I did come to realize that as I worked on this presentation, all of us are constantly going through personal and professional journeys and constantly transforming ourselves into our future selves. So whether it's starting a new job, quitting an old one, enrolling in a course, starting a business, adopting a dog, which I'm very thankful he behaved himself during this call. Um, it's still a little bit of time left, but so we'll see. Or, or even deciding to speak publicly for the first time. We're all constantly transforming into our future selves. And I'm, I'm truly looking forward what's to come next for, for myself and for everyone I know and for everyone on this call. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us tonight and being part of this current phase of my metamorphosis. Thank 
you, Michael. That was great, and I wouldn't have minded if your dog joined us. I uh, I have um, what I've referred to affectionately as dog fever, uh, the way some, some women get baby fever uh, and are excited about getting pregnant. I really just want to get a dog. So uh, any dogs at this point, I'm just like, bring them on the Zoom calls. So I'm pumped for that. Um, I too started a new job uh, through this pandemic and part of the appeal of, of where the, the location was was it was walkable from my house because I had high hopes that it would be, you know, eventually in person. Um, but the Canadian Red Cross is, is moving a lot slower to, to get back in person in that way. So I've not met uh, any except one of my colleagues. So I think that's some solid advice, uh, Michael. Um, you know, I... Anytime somebody said a name I never heard, I would just book a half hour meet and greet with them so that I would get to know who they are. The Red Cross has something like 200 full-time fundraisers uh, just in the Canadian Red Cross piece and then at 4,500 employees. So I'll never get through any everyone, but uh, it's definitely been an adventure getting to know uh, all of those folks. So thanks for sharing your tips. And uh, I know it'll be great um, going into another Giving Tuesday for you. So our final speaker tonight um, uh, is Allison Hill, and I don't know what to say about Allison um, because she is uh, one of the best. Occasionally, friends of mine will apply to speak at this event, and I always remove myself uh, from the selection. So when the committee voted to accept Allison, I was overjoyed because I know her to be one of the best people on the planet. Her kindness, compassion, and intelligence uh, saved me both personally and professionally when I was at Blakely and now more personally, now that I'm not, um, and more times than I could count, she's done this. And I'm so proud of her for stepping up tonight um, and getting out of her comfort zone with this story um, as it's part of her metamorphosis. Um, and I, I can't think of a better person to close out the speakers tonight. I will give one last trigger warning that this uh, story does include some pregnancy loss. Um, so if you need a step away, it's been too heavy for you this evening, uh, please do come back in about 10 minutes uh, for the wrap up. Um, but with that in mind, uh, welcome to the stage, Allison Hill. I am 100% not a fan of germs. As a family, we love to travel, but I have been wiping down airplane seats with Clorox wipes since the Florida Hill family flu event of 2015. The smell of bleach soothes me. If anyone was coming into my house with those babies, they were not touching my children until they washed their hands. The boys have been trained to come home from daycare and wash their hands like a doctor before they even consider touching a toy at home. If anyone had trained their family for a global pandemic, I would have told you I am that woman. Our household budget went from 18% spending on children's sports and activities to 22% spending on bleach, powder tied, canned food, craft dinner, bottled water, and Chromebooks for online learning. I will not talk to you about the budget increase that went into the purchase of our pandemic puppy. I was ready. My husband was ready. We were going to be just fine. It wasn't fine. There were things that I did not put into our survival equation. The proportion of time that my children spent with their grandparents dropped to zero. 
the proportion of time I spent alone in my car decompressing after a workday dropped to zero. The number of days that I went up to my office and came back down feeling zero guilt dropped to absolutely nothing. The days that my kids felt joy because a coach told them that they had done something amazing or a teacher patted them on their back because they had done something great went to zero. And it's not the same hearing it from your parents. Depending on the day, I was a terrible mom, a bad wife, or that employee that just could not get her to-do list finished. And I don't want to swear, so I'm not going to tell you how I felt about being the at-home teacher for <laughs> grades two and grade six. There was no amount of bleach that was going to get rid of the voice in my head that was saying, somebody still needs you to do more. I'm nearly 40 years old, and it was this pandemic that I realized the actual difference between feeling mad and feeling sad. And I sat with that feeling. I was mad, and I was mad all the time. And there were parts of COVID that I enjoyed. There was no running to sports. Our little home activities got finished. We're very financially safe and secure. The fundraising world was doing great. Everybody was rallying around, doing their part. We discovered new charities we wanted to get involved in later on. And my kids were living the dream. They were playing video games, screens all the time, family movie nights, binge watching things that they probably shouldn't have been watching. And they had a puppy to cuddle with. There are wars happening in other countries. There were children that were unsafe and families who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. I really couldn't complain. There was no reason that I should be mad. So that just let me push my rage down a little bit more. And I focused on the good and I was positive and I followed the rules and everything was gonna be fine. But no, my training did not prepare me for the length of this pandemic. It didn't prepare me for the length of homeschooling or that empty feeling that family and friends on Zoom calls just couldn't fill. And eventually I was snapping at people that I loved and that I respected the most. I was miserable and I was done. In the beginning of all of this, the self-care, wellness, mental health stuff seemed like a self-indulgent waste of time until I realized that telling my boys to clean and do chores to standards that took me 20 years to master wasn't fair to them. And sitting at my computer feeling miserable and disgusting wasn't as productive as taking 10 minutes for a hot cup of tea and slapping on some lip gloss. And it's fine that I felt better wearing lip gloss if I wasn't gonna leave my house. The idea that I had to be working hard and productive all the time, whether it was at home or at work, wasn't actually true. It wasn't actually true. I could take a nap in a bed. It didn't have to be under the disguise of a family movie night. Also, it was okay for my husband to have a nap. Because <laughs> there is no such thing as a spite nap. I learned that after the pandemic. When I need time to do something for myself, I actually started just explaining that I had to do something that was fun for me. 
and people understood. I wasn't abandoning anybody and I wasn't slacking off. So I really actually started to believe that it was in fact okay to admit that I wasn't okay and I needed to do something. I'm still in the middle of it. The world's opened up a little bit and there's a whole lot of deep breathing that goes on under a mask. And the vaccinations have helped me feel a little bit safer outside of my bleached safety net. And I've been out of town a few times all alone. And guess what? The chores and the laundry got done not by me and the world didn't end. I came back feeling a little bit more like the person I want to be and the person that I was before the weight of this didn't take over. And I still make excuses for not doing things. Oh, no, I have work to do. I can't go on that run. Oh, the bathroom needs to be clean. I will not be hopping on the rower that I wanted so badly (laughs) mid-pandemic. But at least now that I I can see when I haven't been self-aware enough, and I found a really solid group of friends who are there for the ugly and the horrible when any of us are not quite hanging on the way we feel we want to. If I snap, I'm getting faster at recognizing it and explaining where my mistake was. Once I admitted that I wasn't coping, I saw the world in a new way. It is actually true. You can try, you can stumble, and you can deal with the fallout. There were things that I didn't have in my survival kit before this pandemic, but I've added to it now. It's still incomplete and it's not perfectly sorted. But I do actually now believe that it's okay and there's value in not perfectly sorted. Thank you. What a beautiful way to close out the show, Allison. Um, well done. Um, and uh, that's it, folks. Those are our wonderful speakers tonight. Uh, hard to believe they were nervous as they were so, so wonderful. So I'm now going to ask everybody to come off mute and just give them the round of applause that they absolutely deserve. wonderful thank you all you were all so so magical and you helped us get through this first virtual edition of something we weren't sure would work in a virtual edition so thank you for being part of that team a few quick housekeeping notes before i let you go tonight um if you like tonight and you want to know more about storytelling specifically the ethics of storytelling um afp is running a workshop about marketing and social impact on october 15th at 12 o'clock eastern time it's free for members and non-members alike so go to the afp toronto website to find the events calendar and register for the event Uh, And as you may know, the AFP Greater Toronto Chapter Congress is coming up. Uh, One of the world's uh, premier fundraising conferences is once again online and even bigger, but I won't say better than last year, uh, taking place on November 22nd through 24th. Um, So register as soon as possible uh, if tonight's event inspired you. Uh, You can register again at afptoronto.org. A few quick other notes. Uh, I do. I would be remiss if I didn't thank the lovely committee members who were instrumental in getting this event together. Uh, Scott Jeffries, who couldn't be with us tonight, the Director of Media and Data Services at Stephen Thomas. 
uh, our uh, wonderful, wonderful speaking coach and my my partner in crime getting through this uh, edition of the speaker series, Shannon LaHaye, who's the manager of partnerships at the Sunshine Foundation in Canada and watched this entire thing from her car because of a scheduling issue. So thank you, Shannon. Taylor Taglioni, uh, who is the manager of leadership giving at JDRF Canada, who is two and a half, maybe three weeks back from mat leave, wrangling a toddler on her own tonight, but made sure our judges were prepared and comfortable. So thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Shannon. And thank you, Scott, for everything you do to make this event happen. Thank you to the AFP staff, Penny, Danielle, Matthew, Darren, for everything that you've done to make this happen. Um, I, it's always a pleasure to work with you folks. Uh, thank you to our judges, Samantha Barr, Paul Nazareth, and Paula Atfield. Uh, we quite literally could not have done tonight without you, and especially uh, to Paula and Sam who came in at the last minute uh, when we had a judge crisis. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being available and for believing um, in this event. Paula has been front row, I think, at every single one of these. So I'm, I'm grateful uh, to each and every one of you. Finally, thank you to our supportive audience for being here. Um, please spread the word uh, with what you thought of this event. Good, bad, ugly. I'd love to hear it. Um, share the podcast when it comes out. Uh, listen to our other episodes if you miss them. Consider applying to speak when we come back. Hopefully the next time it'll be in person. If not, we have at least a, a good learning on the virtual. Um, but hopefully it'll be in person so we can have a chance to mix and mingle next time. And as I say, please reach out to me directly with any feedback as well. I'm at Charitable Laura on Twitter. Um, and thank you and have a great night, everybody. Thanks again. Most, most importantly, thank you, Laura, for a great job tonight and all the work put into getting this together. It was amazing to see. We appreciate your energy and thank you for what you've done. Thanks, Penny. Thanks. <laughs> have thank a great you, night. everyone. Great, great job. Yeah. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.